morning. Good to be with you this morning. And it's a great morning to, to worship together, to receive a new members. And as you heard, one of their privileges is the right uh, to vote and the responsibility to vote. And we don't often have a lot of opportunities, but we do have one opportunity this morning. And so following our service, just to remind, uh, remind you, we'll be having a brief congregational meeting uh, I mean brief, um, uh, five minutes or so following the, 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 the worship service will be right here. Uh, I'm just reminding of you, uh, you of that so you don't uh, uh, just run away after the benediction. We'll, we'll take a few minutes to take care of a, a bit of uh, church business. Uh, but last week we began a new series um, that we're calling uh, Of the Spirit, and the plan is... Uh, for us to be in this series for about two months or so. And over these two months, what we're going to be doing uh, is a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be uh, drilling down deep into one New Testament passage, and in fact, uh, using other passages of Scripture to help us unpack it. And the verses that we're going to be drilling down deep into and unpacking are just two verses from Galatians chapter 5. Uh, verses 22 and 23, and those two verses talk about the fruit of the Spirit that is produced in the life of a Christ follower as they grow. Because we saw last week, as we, as we looked at the wider passage and context of Galatians 5, we saw how the things that we do in our lives, or the thoughts that we have, or the words that we speak, they really come from these two warring places in our life. They can come from the old sinful person that we used to be, or they can come from the new person that God is creating through the Holy Spirit. And we saw these two lists in Galatians 5 last week. One was described as the works of the flesh. That's kind of the stuff that we do uh, from that old person, but then we have also the fruit of the Spirit, the things that God produces in us through His work in our lives. And so from now until about mid-September, we're going to be focusing our time each week on one word from that list of the fruit of the Spirit. And this morning, we're starting off with the first one, uh, with the word love. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about love, I mean... I could ask people, hey, give me the definition of love, and I would get all kinds of different answers. I mean, most of us, when we think about love, uh, we're either thinking about the Beatles, Foreigner, or Beyonce, right? The, those, are the, those are the songs that are stuck in, in our head, depending on what generation you're in. And I would also add that the word love is used, the way we've used it in such a broad context, it has almost lost its meaning. In fact, I would argue that it is probably the one word we overuse the most. Maybe, I mean, maybe the image that, that comes to mind for, for some of you is the time when you and your spouse were dating and, and you remember you had that growing feeling of being in love and, and you remember weeks, months later moving towards actually saying it, you know, I love you. And you remember, you know, where you were. You remember everything about that day. So love can be something so deeply meaningful. And then almost daily, we will declare our love for things that are completely insignificant. Like, I love tacos, right? Or, I love the weather. Or, I love Costco. I mean, Costco is not insignificant, but, you know, so... <laughs> 
So I love my wife and my kids, and I can love a cheeseburger, and it's all the same word. And really, we all do this. We, we use this word love to communicate things that we maybe enjoy or this deep sense that we have of connection with another person. So the word love, how we, how we talk about it, how we use it, is, is usually an emotional response. It's usually this, this feeling. But when we look at the Bible, however, when we open up the New Testament in particular, uh, we see love is something so much more than just a feeling. So much more than simply an emotion. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to open up Scripture and try to unpack what love truly means for a follower of Jesus. And as we turn to Scripture, it's important for us to, to remember that the original language of the Bible, it was primarily written in two languages, the old, um, in the Old Testament, the time before Jesus came to earth as a man. That was essentially written in Hebrew. And then the New Testament was written primarily in Greek. And in both of those ancient languages, they were much more precise than the English language because they actually have multiple different words that they would use for different kinds of, of love. Whereas we read our Bibles, we just see the one word love in, in English. I mean, they had different word, a different word for romantic, passionate love, a different word uh, for deep friendship, a different word for family love, and they also had a different word for the kind of love that God has for us and that we are to love others with. As for romantic, passionate love, we see in the New Testament that the Greek word was the word eros, and, and, and throughout Scripture you see the way that people are, you know, well, you know, doing this in the right way, in a God-honoring way, but then you also see many instances where that's not happening uh, at all that way, where it's being engaged in, in, in a sinful way. We also see the Greek word philia uh, for friendship, that is this deep brotherly and sister relationship that, that you have with a friend. And, 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 and we know that word, we're familiar with it because of the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And this is the kind of love described in the Bible often in the community of faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, deep friendship of, of doing life together. We also see the, the Greek word storge used to describe a, a familial love. And this is, the kind, this is often used to, to describe the love and deep affection between a parent and a child. But the one word that we see more often than all the others combined is the word for love that God has for his people. In the Old Testament, it's the word chesed. Maybe you've heard that word before, but in the New Testament, it's the Greek word agape. And if you've grown up in the church or you've been around the church for any length of time, you've certainly heard this word before. Throughout the Old Testament, what you see is this main theme with God's people over and over again. What is it? They fall into idolatry. They sin. They run away from God. But God never gives up on them. And it's because of his hesed, it, it, his steadfast love, this, this deep loving kindness he has for those that he has chosen. This is the prominent theme of the Old Testament. This is what you see over and over and over again. God's people walking away and God wooing them back with his love. And in the New Testament, the related word is agape, and it really is demonstrated most clearly in the love that Christ showed in going to the cross for us. Agape love is marked by sacrifice, by selflessness. 
by an unconditional love that, that you would have for, for another person. And not only is this how God's love is described for us, but it's also prescribed in how we are then to love one another. Something we should recognize too is how different agape is from the love that we often think about in our culture today. It's not primarily defined by how we feel. It's not wrapped up in, in our emotions, but it's wrapped up in how we act, how we live, how we meet needs, how we care for one another. Agape love may involve emotion, but it always involves action. This kind of love, it's volitional. It's an act of the will. It's more than just an emotion or a feeling. This is, and this is the, the primary type of love that we see described in the Bible. And we see it very clearly in a chapter in the, le- in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And if you have a Bible, uh, you can open up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or certainly invite you to follow along as you'll find the text in your worship guide. This is a very familiar passage. Maybe you've heard it. Uh, at, at weddings before, but we're going to take time to dive into the context because the context of 1 Corinthians is not a wedding. Uh, it, it's much, much different. Because the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, he wrote it to this church in, this, in the city of Corinth. And Corinth was a first century Greek city. It was under Roman rule, and it was one of the largest and most prominent cities around. It was a city with a lot of people, a lot of culture, a lot of religious diversity. But like many other Roman cities, it was highly immoral. And Paul had traveled to Corinth, as he would often do on mission, and he would preach the gospel. Uh, People would come to faith, and then he would plant the church. He would raise up leaders, and then he would leave. And then he would continue on to communicate with these churches he planted by letter. And this letter, the letter we have here, is his response to what he heard was happening really in the first year or two of this church in Corinth. And the only word that I can really use to describe what was happening in the church is just dysfunction. I mean, this church was a messy church. It was chaotic. Eugene Peterson, he's, he, he's quoted as saying the Corinthian church gave their founding pastor, Paul, more trouble than all of the other churches he planted combined. I mean, a great thing to be said about your church, right? But when you read 1 Corinthians, you see why. Paul over and over again is like, I've been hearing that this is happening. I can't believe that. And the things that he hears are divisions among Christians, lawsuits among Christians. Christians are suing each other, going to court. People are getting drunk during communion. No joke, that was happening. There was sexual sin within families, within the church. There were issues about marriage and singleness. There was food in the culture that had been sacrificed to idols that Christians weren't sure what to do with. And then there's, there's the abuse of spiritual gifts. There were these gifts that God had given the, the, to the church to, uh, to be used to build one another up, and they had been using them to build up themselves. So this was not the most encouraging letter for Paul to write, but smack dab in the middle of this letter, in the middle of all this correction, he has these 13 verses where he describes agape love. And it's in this chapter, right in the middle of a section that he's offering more correction, he's correcting them about their use of spiritual gifts, but it's here that he provides this very clear description of what love 
looks like in the life of a follower of Jesus. And so that's where we're going to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 1. He says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to, re- to remove mountains, but, I, but have not love, I am nothing. I give away all I have. And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Let's pause there for just a moment because we see really clearly here in these opening three verses what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to communicate to these Corinthian Uh, Corinthian Christians that over everything else, their pursuit of love should be primary. And he does so in a pretty dramatic way, which is not all that unusual for Paul. He, He uses these grand statements of, if I had all these amazing things, without love, it is nothing. I am nothing. And again, remember the context in which these verses are written. This is part of a letter where Paul is saying to them, this is not how you are to use your spiritual gifts. Because in the Corinthian church, God had enabled men and women with these amazing gifts in order for the work of the gospel to go out very powerfully. One of these gifts was the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is having this ability to know other languages so that you can communicate the gospel to new people groups without ever knowing it before. And the gift of prophecy is having God's revelation given directly to you other than the word. It's God speaking to you so that you can speak to other people. And men and women in Corinth had been given these gifts. And they had been given them to build up the family of faith. But what was happening was they were using them to puff themselves up. Look at me. Look look what I can do. So they would have clearly seen themselves in this kind of indictment here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First, Paul talks about tongues. If I was able to speak in the tongues of men and angels, just imagine knowing all the languages and then knowing the language that the angels even speak. Imagine how many people I could reach. Imagine what I could do. But if I was not doing those things in love, do you know what I would sound like? It would, it would just be loud and annoying is really what Paul is saying here. And then he talks about prophecy, having this gift of revelation. If I'm able to understand all, all mysteries and all knowledge and, and even move mountains with my faith, I would be the most sought after person. People would come to me for, for understanding for everything. But if I did all of that, had all of that, that understanding and then communicate it without love, I would be nothing. Finally, Paul writes, if I give away all my possessions, if I give my own life, my body, if I become a martyr even, but I do not have love, he says, I gain nothing. Paul here is communicating to this church in Corinth, no matter what we do, no matter how big, how monumental, how generous, If it is not done with this heart of love, with this acceptance we have in Christ, it's really ultimately about ourselves. And it's so, so very important for us to understand and be aware that there are two primary enemies of love. Things that keep us from pursuing love. And they're really simple things. It's pride 
and self-interest. Pride. We're prideful. We, we live with ourselves as, as truly the most important person. The filter that we, that, that, that we live with is me. What I want to do. My needs. It's about me. And self-interest is really similar. We make decisions with self at the core and others, including God, are secondary. And both of these enemies of love reveal a life focused on me. And so then Paul goes on to describe what love is actually like in contrast. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You know, last week when we were, when we were looking at all of the fruit of the Spirit, we hit briefly on love and we talked about how it's the great motivator. It's really the foundation by which many of the other fruit of the Spirit exist. And we see a lot of the fruit of the Spirit in this list of love in 1 Corinthians 13. But, but we're just going to go through it line by line to see what Paul is saying here. First, he says we, we see that love is patient. To be patient is to, to bear with one another with an attitude of grace. To, to prioritize another person and their needs over your own. Love is kind. Love, love chooses to benefit another person in word or deed without expecting anything in return. Love does not envy. Love chooses to, to celebrate the blessings and gifts of others and not draw attention back on ourselves and, and, and why we don't have those things. Love is not boastful. It doesn't brag. It do, doesn't point the spotlight on ourselves and our accomplishments, but it does that for other people. Love is not arrogant. It, it doesn't reveal an exaggerated view of self, but reveals us as we truly are, people with a deep need for God's grace and his mercy. He says, love is not rude. It doesn't pull others down for the sake of building ourselves up. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is, is, is not self-seeking. It's not narcissistic. It's not self-absorbed, but it's humble and it's others-focused. Love is not irritable. Love doesn't have this tendency to be easily angered or annoyed. Love is not resentful. Love doesn't keep a, a record of wrongs. It doesn't maintain a list of sins, but it strives to forgive, to live at peace with other people. And finally, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love doesn't celebrate sin. It celebrates godliness. It celebrates truth when Jesus is treasured over everything else. And over and over and over again in these five verses, Paul is describing the various outworking of agape love in the life of an individual Christian, but also in the midst of a, a, a church community, because remember, he's writing to, to a church community. And when reading this this week, I felt two things. I felt very encouraged but also very convicted. 
First, I was just encouraged by the clarity that we see of what love truly is from a biblical sense. Because again, we, we don't have to wonder what love looks like. With, with, with how much we overuse the word in our culture, uh, we, we can just begin to think, oh, love is this thing. But we actually see very clearly, no, 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 this is what godly love is. This is what it looks like. This is how God loves us. This is how we are to love one another. And that's a, a great gift to us. But while I was encouraged by that, at the same time, I read this list and I winced. Because I wasn't like, oh, this is me. I read it and thought, oh. Because there are some things on this list that are not me, that I struggle with. And there are two that I just kind of wish weren't there. Just going to be honest, like I wish they weren't there because they are not who I am at this point in my life. It's love being patient and love not being irritable. I read those and I felt like I got punched. Because I, I've noticed how I failed to prioritize the needs of other people in my life. And that is revealed in my lack of patience because more often than not, I wake up, I go through my day with me on my mind, what I want to do, what I need to do. And then I know that this is true because when needs arise from other people, I'm not joyful. I'm often like, oh, okay. And it's this lack of patience, it's this irritability. I, I can become easily angered or annoyed or just checked out when things don't go Daryl's way. And as I thought about these things, I realized it's these two enemies of love, pride and self-interest. Those are the things that are fueling my impatience and fueling my irritability. Because when my life is focused on my needs and my wants, you know, you know how I view other people? As a hindrance rather than a blessing. I wish that weren't true, but it is, and it's hard it's hard to see where I am out of step with the Spirit and where I need to grow. But I'm also really thankful that the Bible that tells me, tells us what to do in those moments. It's to confess those sins. To confess them to God, to other people, to bring them into the light, to, to turn from them and to pursue godliness. That is what we do. So how about you? Were there any words in 1 Corinthians 13 that you kind of wished weren't there? Ones that made you just wince just a little? Well, I would encourage you, confess those things to God. Don't be prideful. Don't be self-interested, but see them for what they are. It's sin. Go to the cross with those things. See, I think we can often read passages like 1 Corinthians 13 and we can leave with this kind of try harder mentality or just be better. You know, I, I, would, I would hate for us to leave this morning and, and think I'm just going to white knuckle my way to, you know, into patience. I'm going to be patient. We can't, right? That's kind of how we, we do it a lot of times. We, we come to church and, and we think just tell me what I should do and I'll come back and tell me again. But I want to, this morning, suggest a different way. What if we did this? What if we look at Jesus? 
What if we look at his life, his way? What if we let our view of the Savior be what fuels this area of our, of our lives? Because all through the Gospels, Jesus loved people. He healed the sick. He spent time with people that everyone else turned their backs on. He, he taught multitudes. He provided food for the hungry. He hung out with kids and he grieved with the, the, the hurting. Jesus' life was marked by agape love, sacrifice, loving kindness, unconditional love. And Jesus, as Jesus prepared to go to the cross, we actually see him spend one final night with his, with his dear friends, his disciples. And, and I love John 13, verse 1, how it sets a state, scene for this, because this is what it says, John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, he was about to go to the cross, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The word for love there in that verse is, you guessed it, agape. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This this love that Jesus had, it was seen in his heart, his emotional heart for his people, but but it was also seen in what he did, the lengths to which which he went. And because right after John 13, verse 1, for five chapters, it tells us everything that he did for his disciples that night. He washed uh, their feet. He prepared them uh, for what life was going to be like without him. He, he shared a meal with them. He, he encouraged them. He prayed for them. But then finally, the next day, he went to the cross for them. It's like we don't have to wonder what love looks like for us towards others. We don't have to wonder about what God's love for us looks like. It's seen most clearly, most powerully in Jesus. And in, in, in 1 John, a, a letter that the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John wrote to some churches, 1 John chapter 4, starting uh, in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, if you were counting in those three verses, love is mentioned six times. And again, you can guess, it's the same word every time. Agape love. And we see in this verse how it is impossible for us to love one another if we have not experienced this amazing love given to us in Christ. This is how we know God. This is how he has made himself known to us. It is through the Lord Jesus. And what's so amazing about Jesus is if if anyone in the world could have demanded honor, uh, could have demanded respect, it would have been him. He he could have said, serve me. Because, I mean, he, he was God in the flesh, but that's not why he came. Page after page after page in the gospel, he came. And, and, and you see him serving, and you see him loving, you see him caring. Uh, Mark uh, 10.45, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for many. And that's what it says here in 1 John, in, in verse 10 of, of, of 1 John 4, Jesus came to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the more we treasure this, as individuals and as a church together, the more we treasure and experience the love of Christ, the more that love of Christ will go out from us. 
See, because it's the fruit of the Spirit. This is what is grown in our lives. That's why it says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. You know, when we think about love, I think it's really easy for us to fall back into how we talk about it culturally uh, and in the world. You know, we, we, can, we, can, we can think it's just a feeling like, like I don't feel loving. You know, much like we use the, the word to describe how we're feeling or the joy we have in something, we, we can really forget that love is not just a, a fleeting emotion. Agape love involves faithfulness, commitment. It's an act of the will. And this is what the Spirit produces in us. It's important for us to remember that as followers of Christ, we're not called to feel loving, but we're called to be loving. Because if we wait for, if, because if we wait to feel a certain way before doing something, we ain't doing it. Our, 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 our emotions are fleeting and they're fickle. That's when we choose to love that person, to meet that need, to, to provide the care necessary. And, and, and you know what happens? The feelings of love will follow. We begin to love that person emotionally. We begin to see that person for who they truly are, an image bearer of God like us, a child of God like us. You know, last week we were talking about the fruit of the Spirit and that analogy of agriculture and, and, and how that's so helpful for us and how things grow in seasons, they grow over time, and they grow in the right environment. So the question I've been wrestling with this week, how does this love grow in us? What type of environment will this fruit of the Spirit just yield more and more in our lives? Well, I thought of, of three things, three environmental factors that could help us here, and I'll close with these. And the first thing that we can do is, is we confess our sins to God. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Combat your pride. Combat your self-interest. Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Ask God to help you to grow in love. Instead of that posture of you first, ask him to give you a posture of humility. But then after you, you confess your sins, look at Jesus. Romans 5.8 tells us this, but God shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus endured the cross because of his love, the deep love that he has for you and for me. And, and the more we treasure him, the more we will reflect him in how we love others. So it's good for us to just regularly take a moment to pause and to thank God that your sins have been forgiven. To treasure that. Don't miss or tire of the weight of that truth. Look at Jesus. And then finally, live in community. Live with others. Don't isolate. Know one another. Be known. This is where love is seen. I mean, when we worship on Sunday mornings, we are, we are doing this together. This is an exercise in community. Our voices are being raised together. We're praying together. We're hearing the scriptures together. And this is a gift to us. Continue pursuing the, this outside of Sunday mornings because living in community, that's where the needs are seen. 
when you're living with others, and not just with other believers, but also in your neighborhoods where, where you're seeing that you can love this person in that way by meeting that need. This is the environment where love grows, when we are confessing our sins to God, when we're looking at Jesus, and when we're living in community. And we're not going to actually do all three of those things in just a moment when we come to the Lord's table together. Because the Lord's Supper or communion, as we see in Scripture, this is one of the things that Jesus did after John 13, verse 1, where, where he said he loved them to the end. And afterward, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he took wine and, and he told his disciples, I'm breaking this bread, I'm, I'm, I'm breaking it and giving it to you. This is my body being broken and given for you. And this wine that I'm pouring out and I'm giving you to drink, this is my blood that I shed for you, for your sins. So when we take communion this morning, this is what we're remembering. We're looking at Jesus, at his life, at his death, at his resurrection. And I would encourage you to come to the, the, the table today with those three things in mind. Confession of sin, looking at, looking at Jesus and living in community. And after I pray, we're going we're gonna to come to the table. But before we do that, um, I would encourage you just to take a few moments to be, to be quiet before God this morning and confess your sins to him. Any, any ways that, that maybe you're out of step with the Spirit, you, that you're seeing that, you, you know what, my life's about me in this area. Confess those sins to God. Drop your pride. Acknowledge your self-interest. Confess them to him. But then after that, come joyfully to the table and remember Jesus. Remember and celebrate the grace offered to you by his work on the cross. Remember and celebrate that your sins have been paid for. Treasure Jesus today as you come to this table. And then after we do that, I'm going to invite us to, to stand uh, at the conclusion of our service to raise our voices in worship with with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to sing the truth of who God is and what he has done, to sing it together because community is a great gift that, that we have and it's in community that we see this fruit of the Spirit not only grow in us as individuals but in our church family together. And so I'm going to pray, we'll come to the Lord's Supper and then we'll sing and worship together as we close our time this morning. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you that... Your love was seen so clearly in Jesus that when we think about 1 Corinthians 13, when we think about what it looks like to love, Lord, we can recognize that we, we often miss the mark. But thanks be to you, O gracious God, you sent to us the Lord Jesus as our Savior. And you have given us Christ to be the one who has forgiven us and frees us for from our sins so that we can just be free and open with those sins, with who we are, with, with, with how we're being, and, and we can come to the cross for grace. Lord, I thank you for this table that has been prepared for us, this simple act of, of eating bread and drinking wine, but, but it symbolizes the cross. It symbolizes sin being dealt with and paid for, the ultimate love shown to us by a God who cherishes us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his body and his blood that was broken for us, shed for us. 
and we treasure him today as, as, as we hear more and more about just how much you love us and, and, and how we are called then to, not just called, but we're also empowered to have that same love for you and for others. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Oops. <laughs>